North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Impossible State. My name is Victor Cha. I'm Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS, professor at Georgetown University. And today we'll be discussing Japan-Korea relations and U.S.-Japan-Korea relations. And we have with us um, someone who's a wonderful scholar, also from, from the world of practice. I guess in, the, in, in Washington, D.C., we call these people scholar practitioners, right? People who operate at the intersection of both scholarship and policy, um, Dr. Katrin Fraser Katz. Uh, let me properly introduce her. Katrin is currently a uh, fellow, a non-resident fellow in the Korea Chair at CSIS uh, in Washington, D.C., of course. Uh, but she's also a professor of practice in the Department of Political Science and in the Master's of Arts in International Administration program at the University of Miami. She also holds a non-resident uh, senior fellow uh, position at the Korea Society in New York. Uh, previously, Dr. Katz served in the U.S. government on the National Security Council as Director for Japan, Korea, and Oceanic Affairs. That was during a time in history where uh, the NSC was actually less large than it is today, and you could actually be, be director for more than one country in Northeast Asia. That's not the case anymore these days. Um, she was also at the State Department prior to that, a special assistant to the Assistant Secretary for International Organization Affairs, uh, as well as, uh, be prior to that, as well as at the CIA. Um, she has taught courses, obviously, at the University of Miami, but also at Columbia and at Georgetown, and holds a PhD in political science from Northwestern University, uh, an MA degree in East Asian and International Security Studies from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and her BA uh, is in International Relations and Japanese from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, so anyway, Katrin, uh, Katrin is a good friend of CSIS, a good friend of, of mine as well, um, and we're really happy to have you here. We know you're in DC for a conference as well, and that you were also teaching online just before this. So it's sort of the typical day, right, of, uh, of, uh, of the professor who also works on policy issues. Um, but anyway, I wanted to spend some time today and talk about sort of where we are on Japan-Korea and U.S.-Japan-Korea relations. Um, you know, we've had this uh, amazing summit in Camp David last August. Things seem to be moving forward. Um, um, uh, the last week, I guess it was last week, uh, Ann Neuberger at the White House hosted her counterparts to launch a new trilateral dialogue on cybersecurity. Um, there, there was news reports today of uh, Japan and Korea participating in funding some infrastructure projects in the Philippines, projects that the Philippines previously were, be, were having funded by the Chinese that are no longer being funded by the Chinese. And then with APEC coming up, there's some rumors. They're just rumors. Nothing's been confirmed that the two leaders, uh, Kishida and Yun, may meet separately on the sidelines of APEC. So there's a lot going on. 
But before we talk about the future, um, I think it would be helpful if you um, uh, helped us, our listeners and viewers, think about sort of how far we've come. So we're talking about a period of time that is about 1.5 years. Um, and so, where, Catherine, where were we like a year and a half ago in this relationship? Well, thank you, Victor, for that very kind introduction. Um, I have to say, speaking with you in particular about this issue is quite meaningful because, um, uh, as, as you know, as I think the first time I met you, I, I was aware of your books, and I was aware of your books on this topic, um, and I was aware of them um, from my time living in the region, living in um, Korea and, and Japan. Um, and so, um, you know, in your kind of talking through the scholar practitioner, I guess that's quite a quite a title, I guess, because <laughs> <I guess> I've <laughs> jumped between those spheres. Um, it's also been a, a personal kind of journey for me. It really started as a as a student abroad mm. um, in the region. Um, in fact, studying some of the very issues that are still very, very difficult in this relationship. Um, actually lived in Japan in 19, 1998, which was when the Kim Obuchi Declaration was mm. um, mm -hmm. occurred. And I was studying the war apology issue from Japan. Um, and I realized at that time, so this is before going into, um, I guess, policy world and academia world. Now there's a lot in here, um, this relationship on that. But from a purely personal perspective, I thought to myself, you know, what is it to have a war apology? Mm. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what is it to have an apology that's a, that's, a, that's a strong enough one? And what does this look like from that other country that we're talking about? Because at the time I had studied Japanese, I'd been fortunate to go to high school in Australia and start studying Japanese and go to Japan and very much enjoyed living with a family and mm. learning about things from that perspective. But I thought, what does this look like from Korea? So I knew that it was a very exciting time for both Korea and Japan. It really truly was. I mean, come out of, we get to this historic low that we've just come out of in a to a historic high in the last year and a half. Right. But this is a relationship that, as you know well from your scholarship and your work, um, it has a, a cyclical pattern up, down, up, down, up, down. And that's quite interesting. It's, it's just interesting. I, I've always kind of said when I've, you know, had the good fortune to teach this, um, you know, there's so much packed into this relationship. There's, there's this, this historical grievances, nationalism um, tied to the, those uh, unresolved historical grievances. There's economic ties, pra pragmatic economic ties, and there's security, you know, shared threats. And then there's a shared ally in the U.S. So um, in many ways, it confounds uh, many theories, mm. but it also brings into kind of these two elements of, um, I guess, humanity, like the, the emotional and the practical mm. and what wins out at the end of the day. And at the end of the day in this relationship, neither does. Mm -hmm. Right. There's always a tension between the two. So um, in my very not so um, conclusive way with my students, I've said if we could resolve this relationship we could resolve so much in the world. Mm. You know, if we hone in on this relationship, when we dig into what really is going on here in so many ways, we could figure out a lot of things. Um, so that's a very long-winded introduction to say, wonderful mm. to be here with you today. Sure. Great honor. Um, you've always been a good friend and a dear mentor to me. So anytime I get to sit down with you is wonderful. Mm. Um, um, and in terms of, okay, the last year and a half, so let's just kind of take a little cut from this up, down, up, down pattern that anyone who's followed the relationship knows well. Um, a, a historic low um, that this relationship was really in starting in 2018, 
um, uh, with the um, I mentioned unresolved historical uh, issues. Um, a South Korean Supreme Court ruling um, basically said uh, ordered Japanese companies um, to pay uh, South Korean victims of forced labor um, to compensate them for the, mm -hmm. the forced labor. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that this was a ruling that was, you know, um, over time, evolved over time. You know, there are earlier cases, um, but under the um, government of Moon Jae-in, it actually uh, reached the Supreme Court and they made this ruling. And that was very upsetting to Japan because in 1965, um, uh, South Korea and Japan had a normalization treaty and Japan claimed that these, these issues were resolved. Um, at that time. So this started a political um, a political and diplomatic standoff. Um, again, not unusual for this relationship. Unresolved historical grievances have been going on a long time. But why was this a historic low? Because at that particular point, it actually bled into these other spheres, as mm -hmm. I mentioned. Like, these are economic partners. These are, you know, you have shared um, kind of security interests and security ally generally when these um, disputes flare up. Um, they remain in this kind of political um, sphere and are compartmentalized. But in 2018, it spilled over mm. um, into the economic realm uh, when Japan um, issued, a, you know, um, export restrictions on a very th uh, some very important precursor chemicals for um, South Korea's production um, of, of um, semiconductors. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so this was a significant economic move, which Japan claimed had nothing to do with the historical issue, but as South Korea kind of said, they don't believe that. So South Korea retaliated um, and, you know, they took each other off their lists of preferred trading partners. So this was growing in the economic realm. Right. Um, and then it grew to the security realm. Um, we were in Seoul, if you recall, yeah, when, when there was that. this discussion yeah. summer of 2019, and this was happening really fast. And I think... I remember looking at, is this really happening? Yeah. This isn't the pattern. Yeah. This isn't what happens. So what happened in the security realm is that um, Moon Jae-in's government um, threatened to not renew the GSOMIA General Security Military Information Agreement, which is a very important information share, uh, sharing agreement be between uh, Japan and South Korea, and threatened not to renew it. Later, ultimately did renew it, but this was growing and snowballing fast. Um, yeah. And it got stuck. It got stuck until year and a half ago um and um ultimately you know we can talk about why it kind of yeah. uh you know shifted back but i think the election of um uh president yoon was significant um because throughout the campaign he he you know really i guess in the way camp political campaigns go kind of point to the finger it's Moon Jae-in's uh administration's fault we we can't you know be fighting with japan this way the stakes are too high um, so ultimately, you know, you know, carried through on his pledge right. from the campaign. So, so I want to talk about that, but first, but going back to like this year and a half ago, the other thing I remember was like there was there was like a military incident at sea, right, yeah. where you had a, I think it was a South Korean naval vessel and a Japanese maritime self-defense airplane, right. Where they actually they, locked, they like, radar. They locked radar right. on that plane. I right, mean, right. Like this is also something that was unheard yes. of. Yes, that was in December into January. There was a back and forth about that. Yeah. And that was just like a, in the security realm, that was like um, a, a big kind of tr the trust factor really right. withered there. Right. Because sometimes, you know, in the, in the, in the security space, um, security cooperation has you know, always been somewhat limited because of the nature of the relationship. 
Um, but you'd have some kind of, you know, modus, you know, uh, they, they'd operate together, you know, yeah, and there sure. was some some yeah. degree of trust that built up, and often it was done quietly. Um, but because of this kind of sm- snowballing, this was before um, the export control moves, but yeah. like because of this kind of snowballing effect, um, this was really significant because it was like two different stories coming out. Yeah. Um, and they were um, contradicting each other. And basically, like, it just got worse and worse. And right. it got to the point where neither side was even going to speaking with each other, you know, in different videos coming out and made public and that sort of thing. Right. So, yeah, this maritime incident also um, affected the security realm. And you're right, before the Jusomia yeah. issue came and, up. The and the, and the two leaders were, like, not talking to each other. Right. right. They, were not, they were not talking to each other. Right. Um, End of kind of shuttle diplomacy and meetings right. and then kind of trickles down to the working level. So right. yeah. Yeah. really problematic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it felt like the two were actually almost decoupling from each other. Like the Koreans were, they would talk about security, but only in the Korean theater and the Japanese would talk about security in the Japanese theater. Anyway, so really bad. Like, like you said, you know, usually this goes in cycles and it can be bad and it can be good, but it's never really good and mm-hmm. it's never really bad. And right. we were now in really bad territory. Right, right, right. Um, but then we get to, you know, so we, so if we fast forward, we get to August last year, Camp David, you know, major trilateral uh, statement, major trilateral agreement. Um, um, the relationship looks like it's not just back on track, but thriving. Um, and so I guess the question is like, how did we come so far in a year and a half? Like, what are the reasons you think we came so far yeah. in a year and a half? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, comparing back to like, we've had agreements and they've unraveled before, like right. 1998 turned into kind of the mid 2000s of kind of another low point. Um, so, um, yeah, how did uh, how did we come so far, you know, and kind of break break through? Um, I think the stakes are just much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, you know, on top of kind of the leadership factor, I mean, Yoon, um, Yoon's decision to um, come up with a you know, resolution to the forced labor issue, which mm-hmm. is quite unpopular. So we still see like the domestic implications of that for him. Right. Um, but his willingness to kind of push it through, knowing that that was what was needed to then kind of unravel the economic and the security realms and to get cooperation going um, on in those realms. Um, I think that just the um, rapid intensification of threats, like the, the, the triple threats, you know, North Korea's, um, you know, unprecedented weapons development, mm-hmm. which, you know, we've followed and covered. And mm-hmm. what was it 90 crews and ballistic missile tests last year, something mm-hmm. you know, just completely, um, you know, you track all the missiles yeah, here yeah, at CSIS. Control, they're just like yeah. off the charts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, what they're trying to do is just to kind of perfect this, IC- among other things, perfect this ICBM technology to be able to credibly hit the United States, which then has implications for South Korea and the region right. in terms of decoupling, right? Mm-hmm. The worries about decoupling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's um, uh, you know, threats to, to use uh, nuclear, it's first use doctrine, so-called mm-hmm. first use doctrine that it came up with. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, all, all of this, uh, these things on the North Korean side, then, then we have China's kind of decades long missile and, um, and, uh, you, you know, aims for nuclear development, mm-hmm. um, starting to look at South Korea's, def- you know, uh, missile defenses aimed at North Korea as directed at it, starting to exercise more, even with Russia in the region. 
Um, and then Russia, Russia's war in Ukraine and, um, you know, the fears that that Im immediately imposed for both Japan and Korea, Japan thinking about deterrence in the Taiwan Strait, um, Korea thinking about its vulnerability as a non-nuclear state next mm -hmm. to a nuclear state, mm -hmm. um, of course, now compounding it with the um, increased alignment with North Korea, Russia, Kim Jong-un's very public meeting with Putin, right. um, bringing that whole alignment all you know together. It's very clear, you know, that this is a new a new era, a new yeah. space. Um, you know, we had in as you remember well, um, China and, and Russia in the six-party talks were on the same page. We were trying to kind of move forward in this kind of, you know, fits and starts, but some kind of coordinated fashion yeah. towards at least a shared proclaimed goal. We're not there anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the stakes yeah. of not getting along have just really increased. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's a, you know, both are kind of necessary conditions. Without you, you know, it, we were stuck on the forced labor issue. And again, we'll see. This isn't, history issues don't get resolved, right? Yeah, we can get yeah. to that later. Um, but um, I think without those two factors, we wouldn't get to this point, um, you know, which is significant about the Camp um, David state, statement and summit, um, just uh, aside from its symbolism, is it, it, really, it, it really represents um, shared values, common interests, um, and the degree to which these countries now look at their security as intertwined. Um, this um, commitment to consult really says, okay, I mean, what does that mean? If you're going to, that was not like the 1998 statement, which was mm -hmm. the big statement before. You're not talking about this, you know, intertwined security. It's a completely different space um, for this trilateral. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and, and so uh, going, so I think I totally agree with you. I mean, there, there are a number of like, Things don't change in foreign policy for only one reason. They change for a number of, a confluence of reasons. Um, but if we go back to, um, uh, if we put, so there's the external security environment, and then there, what was happening at the micro level, at the state level, Yun, and the leadership level. Um, like, why did he do this? Like, why do you think he did this? Like, what is it about him that led him to take such a bold path? No. I, I mean, I think boldness is yeah. a good word. Yeah. He likes audaciousness, yeah, he is boldness. Bold. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's also, um, I think it's important that he was not a kind of seasoned politician. Mm -hmm. I think so. anyone who really understood the domestic risks or cared about them, uh, you know, he's a very unusual figure, right? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it takes unusual figures and almost, you know, non-politicians in a sense I mean, there's very typical po political plays around this issue, like with Im Young Bak going to Dokdo right. Dokachima and, right. you know, trying to get some quick domestic political points. Like, that's in the playbook, right? right. Yeah. Um, but this is unusual. Like, really just saying, kind of just, you know, boldly ramming this through. 60% yeah. um, yeah. disapproval rating, um, you know, and... Um, uh, you know, risk of becoming, I guess, an early lame duck. We have legislative elections in the spring, so yeah. we'll see what happens. But really believing in this, I think that he really has this kind of belief, and it comes from um, general, I, I believe what he says, freedom and democracy are mm -hmm. just released. These aren't just things he talks about. I think he believes in them, and so he, he rams things through um, despite political costs in this mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. so. um, and so, so now that, you know, so that we're on this positive path now, and some might reach the conclusion that they're like, oh, okay, that means like we're past all the history issues, right? Now, I know you don't believe that's the case, 
But I guess the, the question here is, you know, if we talk about the relationship going in these cycles, like the Japan-Korea relationship going through these cycles, um, um, and right now we're sort of in a good place, like how do we know when it's going to go bad again? I mean, uh, there are elections, of course, right? Um, but aside from the elections, how do we know that when it's going to when it's going to go bad again, when it's going to be disruptive or when it's going to be manageable. And the reason I ask this question in particular is because I know that, um, you know, that your research um, sort of looked at this question of cycles in the Japan-Korea relationship and the puzzle of like, you know, when is it truly disruptive, like uh, G-SOMIA, right? Um, and, and when is it really good? But your main point is that it's never either of those things. It kind of vacillates in this sort of bounded space. Mm -hmm. And so why is that? Like, what are the reasons you think that's the case if you can sort of dig back into <laughs> when you the were doing this research in the dissertation and, and the eventual book? I, I mean, yeah. so I think, so I, of course I know, but I'd love the, for the viewers to hear. Yeah, okay, so it is, what's for I think sure it's a very is that it'll argument. come up again. Yeah. Like, things will, yeah. Get, yeah. things will get bad. I mean, what's interesting from my research, again, we might be in this new era and my, I could throw out my research and we mm -hmm. can start fresh. Mm -hmm. um, but because there's so many built-in ways for kind of external things to come up, uh, built-in things like um, Takashima Day in February mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, on the Jap Japanese side, which is kind of like came out of Shimane Prefecture, which is kind of where the fishing area that like really cared the most originally about this issue. So that comes up. So then South Korea has to respond every year, right? Textbook revisions are another that kind of comes up regularly um you can also have civic activism that you know chooses to raise something um you know th this is out of the leadership level i mean things that the leadership has to respond to once the leadership responds to sometimes it's boilerplate language you have to say something you have to say this is you know say mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking about like a dr takashima dispute you have to kind of say you know whatever the leadership has to say but what if the other side you know somebody on the other side comes up with you, you know, out, even if it's not the top level, like a lower down official, a local official says something really inflammatory, mm -hmm. then the other, it's this action reaction cycle, sure. right? So the leaders will have to deal with that again. I think what really makes the difference is when leaders choose to kind of take it and run or they tamp it down um, and they need to do so carefully, but there's a clear difference. Um, when they do it, there, there's a lot of dogs that haven't barked in the, in my studies, right? Where you'd see kind of civic activism happening, but it doesn't kind of the, 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 it doesn't get inflamed mm -hmm. to the same degree. You can see when a leader really wants to manage it and and doesn't because there's either boilerplate language or there's something that really takes mm -hmm. it to the next level. So mm -hmm. there's agency here with the. Uh, it, I think the bottom line, at least from my my work, is that nationalism matters, but it can be managed. Um, and that's maybe a useful thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's mm -hmm. some degree of functionality since nationalism is certainly not going away. Um, and you can look at, um, you know, why leaders do that at different times. Sometimes it's really just too tempting. Like mm -hmm. uh, Im Myung-bak in the end of his um, of his term went mm -hmm. to went the first head of state to visit Dr. Takashima, mm -hmm. right? Um, but um, yeah, le leadership matters. It's also um, they they can deescalate quietly often um, because um, there's you know other kinds of ties that matter. Sometimes there's a North Korean like uh, missile flaring up that makes it easier to deescalate. The public understands. All of these factors kind of come in together um, um, to to allow for deescalation once nationalism is inflamed. Mm -hmm. So this is I guess you know maybe just. Uh, 
too much of my dissertation coming out in this <laughs> session. <laughs> but, um, you know, the bottom line is that, uh, you know, what leaders decide to do ultimately matters. And they do actually get away with de-escalating, interestingly, even though nationalism is supposed to once rally tie leaders' hands so that they're not, you know, they're supposed to just walk off, run off the cliff to everyone's detriment because mm-hmm. they just can't tamp it back down. But at least, you know, at least in the decades that I looked at this and you've looked at this, um, it's actually something that's been managed. So these are more Band-Aids on the issue. It doesn't mean that um, they get resolved. It doesn't mean they shouldn't try to be resolved. But what the Band-Aids allow for is, um, you know, Uh, in the context of North Korean missile tests, in the context of economic ties that are also very important to the country, right, and to the people of the countries, that they can get back to work on those things. So um, you mentioned economic ties. And uh, so, I mean, we, so things that matter, obviously, like leadership, as you said, I mean, uh, electoral politics matters, right? External threats sometimes allow you to de-escalate. But what about some of these other actors, right? domestic actors. So things like you mentioned economic ties. So the business communities mm-hmm. in both countries, mm-hmm. the media, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then putting aside the political leadership, the politicians like mm-hmm. in these countries, what what sort of roles do they play in this cycle on these sorts of issues? Yeah. So. I mean, I, I guess the, the business... Um, the business groups, I think, are interesting because they're quiet actors. They're by nature not really trying to be out front. Right. You know, they're kind of... Um, uh, and they're closely, you know, t- tied to uh, export-oriented industries, or you know, have historically within the developmental state, you know, been tied to the leadership. Um, even if they don't have close ties, they matter. Mm-hmm. Um, they matter to the, you know, general economic strength of the country. So, um, you know, for a, a leader who's worried about, you know, de-escalating a dispute, um, they know that um, in general, export-oriented businesses are going to be in favor of that, that they're not going to lose all of their kind of important constituencies if they de-escalate. Mm. Sometimes when things get really heated, you do see, you know, in, in Japan, you'll see your Keidanren or, um, you know, groups of, uh, uh, you know, big uh, industry groups coming out, FKI coming out and saying things like it's time, you know, it's time, you know, even pressuring the leaders you know, publicly. Yeah. That sometimes happens. But, you know, that I think that happened during, like, um, Prime Minister Koizumi's repeated visits to Yasukuni mm-hmm. and because there were problems with both China and um, Korea at that time. And um, I think at that point, the if I remember correctly, the the business groups got vocal and public about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, oftentimes it can also be, you know, behind-the-scenes support and encouragement right. for de-escalation. Um, which is just a product of, you know, this time period of export-oriented growth. It was it wouldn't be the case under protectionist, you know, kind of um, time period where closed closed economies, which you know, imperial era Japan was one thing I mm-hmm. compared it to. Where you don't mm-hmm. have private interests backing de-escalation. You had private interests backing escalation. This mm-hmm. is Jack Snyder I'm talking about in mm-hmm. his work, Myths of Empire. Um, but... Um, Anyway, it's it's a product of kind of interdependence. You know, it's something that, you know, in the U.S. we talk about more protectionism. Well, these economies are still very export dependent. Mm-hmm. And so we're not in this space where we can just kind of not worry about the costs of um, disputes with key trade partners um, just going on and on and on. You know, I mean, the costs actually start to accrue and they matter. Yeah. So. Yeah. And what about media? 
Media, you know, I it didn't in the studies I did, mm -hmm. I didn't kind of get into it as much mm -hmm. um, because I saw it as kind of following, I guess, um, you know, a report on the civic groups for sure. So, mm -hmm. so that's part of it. If, if say like a grassroots movement um, gets wants to get one of these disputes on the front burner again, the media plays a role immediately in pressuring the leadership to respond. Right. Um, but I, you know, I didn't see it at least. Um, playing an independent role so much as um, placing pressure, you must respond, right? Um, you know, of course, you have your your left and right media, so you can kind of the predictable criticism or um, kind of tone down less criticism, depending on, you know, what, what the leadership is at a time. But um, I looked at it more as, you know, a form of pressure in the grassroots. And then, and then of course, reporting on whatever the leadership was doing, mm -hmm. um, not uh, having uh, so much an independent effect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. Um, um, clearly, lots of variables, lots of actors that play a role in this cycle, uh, this sort of bounded cycle. Um, That's probably changed now with social media, though, I'll say, if I was... For the media. For sure. For media, For sure, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Because it's a different type of media than when I was doing... They're an accelerant, for Absolutely. sure. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and misinformation. There's all kinds of other, you know, ways that it um, can play in, in, you know, an independent Misin role. Disinformation by third parties, uh, too. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, need to redo the dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember, you remember when Yun um, made the deal on labor compensation, and it wasn't really a deal. It was sort of a self-declaration about how the Koreans were going to handle it. Um, lots of props from the United States and from uh, others. Uh, silence, right, from China, mm. silence from Russia, mm. but a lot of negative stuff on social media, mm -hmm. right? Right, so, right, right, yeah, which yeah. drives, of course, depending on who's looking at so social media, you know, people's, they can spin people up in sure. different directions and yeah. make it harder to tamp yeah. things down. Yeah, absolutely, right? so. absolutely. Um, um, so let's, let's finish by talking about sort of the road ahead, like, so... Um, uh, I hate it when people ask me this question, so I'll, I'll ask it to you, which is, so, Kashin, if you were still on the NSC, <laughs> what would you recommend that the administration should be doing now on trilateral relations after, after Camp David? Mm. Well, I mean, I think it's really encouraging. I mean, you just mentioned at the very beginning, like, how many things are already happening? Yeah, like, yeah. you could have, like, a desk officers sit there and be like just tracking all of this um it's it's great because sometimes you have a leadership statement and then it's like all right guys we had the deliverables let's deliver and it really does seem to be like already in effect yeah. like there's this new default like reflexive response when there's a crisis um you know when um when kim jong-un met with putin there was a joint trilateral right. statement uh, you know against the arms transfers uh, you know very quickly yeah and so um, that's really promising. I think, you know, it's not about like, oh, time to follow up. I think the follow up is happening. I think that's a sign of like how much all these countries like actually see this as a necessity. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not like dragging feet. Um, I think that uh, I would say um, things are going to come up, right? Um, is this I saw in one of like the really great post Camp David Summit session you had at CSIS with um um, Kurt Campbell and, and uh, two, the two ambassadors here. Right. Uh, the question is, is it future proof, right? Um, it's, you know, definitely impossible to know what's going to come up. Things are going to come up. I would say um, that there's some really um, 
you know, there's a North Star statement in the Camp David document um, that um, should hopefully serve as a guide, which is just pretty simple. You know, we're in a new era um, and our share values will be our guide. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not quoting verbatim, but a free and open Pacific will be our collective purpose. So, um, you know, that is, I think, not just words. I think that that was very much the spirit of the summit. And, you know, mm -hmm. this, the fact that they have collective purpose and shared values as the guide. Now, how, how do you translate that into every kind of wild card event that comes up? Um, I mean, right now we have obviously um, really, you know, big questions around U.S. capabilities. What if the um, Israel-Hamas war spreads to a broader regional conflict? Can the U.S. actually manage you know, um, helping with Russia, Ukraine, helping with um, Israel, and then and then keeping up deterrence in the Pacific, yeah. right? I think that the imperative for um, this trilateral is to show that they're, you know, as Secretary of State Blinken going to the region, like we are laser focused here. We have not, you know, taken our eye off the ball. Mm. Um, and so, you know, while U.S. deterrence, upholding U.S. deterrence in the Middle East is essential, I think the, the, the order of the day for these three is to uphold deterrence in the Indo-Pacific um, and to do everything they can to show no daylight between mm. them, because any daylight between them only feeds into the hands of China, Russia, North Korea, and all of the kind of coalition that they're building, this so-called revisionist coalition in the world, right? So yeah. I would say just kind of like, there's your statement, your collective purpose, Indo-Pacific, peace and stability, right? And shared values as the guide. Yeah. Um, you know, otherwise it's just kind of like following up on the economic side with things like the um, supply chain, you know, um, uh, the supply chain initiatives and, oh, you know, coordinating on industrial policy, all these things that can like create really big problems if they're not just managed well process wise. Um, uh, buffering against domestic shocks is another big one because, um, you know, as I noted, Yoon, um, President Yoon's leadership was important in this, but so was Prime Minister Kishida's and, and President Biden. So three of them are backing this. And we know that in um, the United States, there's different differing views and have been differing views on the importance of the alliance, alliances and how important it is for the U.S. to be you know, involved and engaged in the world in these ways. Um, I would just kind of, uh, I guess, um, do as, as they're trying to do. I just try to, for those who believe this to be an important integral, um, you know, element of international peace and security today, which I know that the current leaders do, um, I think they have a compelling case. I think we're going to have to make that case to all of our publics. Mm -hmm. um, maybe some publics are more receptive to it than others. I think in Japan and South Korea, they kind of get it. Um, yeah. I don't know about the U.S. public, and we have our, you know, electoral um, situation coming up. Um, I liked um, President Biden's line, and I'll see if I can read my own handwriting. Um, our countries are strong, uh, stronger, and the world safer as we stand together. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I believe that to be true. Um, I don't know that I'm the typical voter in the United States, um, but I think there's a case to be made for that. And I think that the more um, the, you know, action items from the statement are implemented and the more you can we can point to how that is creating a safer world, 
and a stronger United States and, you know, its partners, the more compelling that case is for at least, you know, within the United States. Yeah, it's ironic that, that I, I agree that a lot of this stuff doesn't probably register very widely in the United States, but... Um, We're in a bubble. Yeah, but it certainly <laughs> registers in the region, right? I mean, and, sure. and especially in Moscow, Beijing, and Pyongyang, like Absolutely. all of this. Right. They're watching all this like a hawk. I mean, a couple of thoughts um, um, on the future proofing of the relationship. I mean, every time I go to, um, to a meeting and talk about this issue, everybody asks about the elections in Korea coming in April. And I, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I certainly understand the concern, right, that, uh, as you said, like concern he might be a lame duck if he loses the election. But the other way to look at it um, and probably some viewers would not agree with this, is that um, he's already done all of this while being in the minority, mm-hmm, right, right, in the legislature. Right. So if the outcome of the election is that he's still in the still minority, minority, right, right, like, right, right. Is that really going to, ch- especially as you said, because he's not your typical politician, mm-hmm, right? This mm-hmm. is a pretty headstrong person who mm-hmm. has an agenda that he's going to follow through. So that's the first thing. That on, and the second on on um, the, sort of the the psych the way this the, this three way relationship has been set up the institutionalization there is so as you said there's so much going on mm-hmm. that as you know like when you worked in the U.S. government when you know that your principals are going to meet quarterly um, that just sets off a dynamic right um, where you're just where, where paper is moving right mm-hmm. constantly because you need to produce deliverables for mm-hmm. each meeting. Mm-hmm. And so that just creates a regular cycle of events and momentum that move everything in the same direction. Related to that, um, you know, the announcement that uh, Campbell, right, will be moving over to state mm-hmm. as the number two, like uh, people ask me like, oh, is that concerning? Like he won't be the White House Asia coordinator. And at least the way I look at it is that you know, as the White House Asia coordinator, he was able to create, start up all these initiatives at a very high level. And now being over at state, he can implement them, right? Because that's where the implementation happens. It happens at state. Um, and of course, he'll have other things to do. But the alternative is to have somebody else be the deputy secretary who has no Asia experience, right? right? And then right. people would be like, oh, you know, there's nobody who's implementing all this work the White House is doing. I so. think as long as he stays in the government, it's good. Yeah, yeah. As long as he stays. Well, I mean, they've they've, <laughs> they've announced his nomination, so right. Ho- yeah, hopefully he will. And then um, the last thing is, I don't know if it was when you were in government or I was in government, but it was in that period of like 2000, between 2006 and 2008, that Japan. And Australia had a bilateral security declaration. Mm-hmm. It was out of a summit between probably Koizumi and Howard, mm-hmm. John Howard, Prime Minister of Australia. But they had a bilateral security declaration. It wasn't a treaty, right? It, it didn't have any provisions of a treaty or security commitments, but it was a statement, a declaration of common security interests. Mm-hmm. Is that possible between Japan and Korea? I mean, this is a stepping stone mm-hmm. to that. I mean, yeah. it's the implication of it. The implication of the, um, what is it, the commitment to consult right. is yeah. that you get on the phone when something big happens mm-hmm. and you consult. So mm-hmm. it's not called that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's in some ways uh, moving too fast in that direction might be um, 
might be risky at this point mm-hmm. because it would be distracting. Yeah. Um, kind of already getting to that by um, kind of more organic processes mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. the, and if that's the process, it's less likely to be, um, I guess, um, I guess there are two thoughts. It's China (laughs) and it's like kind of the domestic, um, the domestic politics implications of it because South Korea is still very sensitive to Japan and security, right? Um, Mm. Because of all these historical issues. So it's just baby steps, right? right? right. But a lot of it, um, oh, Mike Green, our friend Mike Green did a great piece in foreign policy recently on Uh. Asian NATO. Like, would it be an Asian NATO? Like, Uh would we get to that point? And he's kind of like, well... Um, you know, here's the reason yes, here's the reason no, but at the end it was like, let's watch what China does. Uh You know, let's say, let's put it in China's hands. If you don't want it to happen, you know, because we've seen these things go this far, as we've talked about, like the biggest statement was 1998, which was nowhere near this. And there's nothing in between. A lot of this has to do with with this external threat environment. And a lot of that has to do with China, right? Which also um, so. is, is also the answer to the future-proofing question, right? I mean, leaders matter, of course, but the external environment has changed dramatically right. from, you know, from um, uh, just a few years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you take kind of Yoon out of it and you put kind of if Moon had stayed in all, that's the kind of thought experiment to mm-hmm. think. Like if we were stuck on the forced labor issue, Japan didn't have the domestic cover to yeah. unravel the export controls. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, really both end. We're not, yeah. we're not choosing a yeah. favorite factor. Yeah. Here. So, <laughs> so, I mean, in, in the end, like, I mean, what made Camp David so historic was, as you know, as you said, on the one hand, like what was talked about in 1998 pales in comparison to what, was, what has been talked about in the Camp David summit. Um, and also that it was formal, right? There was a formal declaration. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, um, there's a delicate balance there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, some, if you formalize it too much, then you get all the domestic blowback, mm-hmm. right? In mm-hmm. both countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in both Japan and Korea. So it's mm-hmm. finding that finding that balance is not is is challenging. Right? Yeah, it's very challenging. In, in 98, the external environment also mattered, though. There was the financial crisis, right. and there was the Taepodong launch in right. 98. So all both of those factors also, you know, compelled yeah. them together. And yeah. Because some of these things are really common. It's just at a different scale, yeah. different stakes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, well, anyway, thanks, Catherine, for a fascinating conversation. It was Thank great you. to sit down with you and um, uh, talk about the relationship and the past and what we have going forward and the determinants of all these cycles in the relationship. So, um, so thanks to you. Thanks to our listeners and viewers for joining us for another episode of the impossible state. And we'll see you again soon. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
is the impossible state.